three through first grade, you are welcome to head back to children's worship, if that's okay with your folks. Adults, you have to stay here. Um, If you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And this morning we're going to be reading verses 8 through 12. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city whose foundations, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Let's pray. Father, we turn to you with great anticipation and hope that you'll speak to us from your word and that you'll speak with power. As we're just reminded in song, Lord, you speak a different message than we think frequently. You speak a different message than the world around us. But we choose even now, O God, to believe what you say, for your word is truth. And we pray that in believing that you will transform our lives. We pray for our children. We plead with you, O God, that you would work in their lives drawing them to yourself, that they, as the example of uh, Carissa has given even this day, that they would make a public profession of faith and they would demonstrate the work that you've done in their lives. We ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews 11, um, I remember the first time that I heard it called the, the Hall of Faith as opposed to the Hall of Fame. Um, I was a kid who grew up and I loved... Uh, the first Sunday of preseason football, when there was the Hall of Fame game. I, I just, I know it was always a horrible game, but it just, it meant football was starting, and I, and I thought of the Hall of Fame, and I dreamed of going to the Hall of Fame, and, and after we moved here, we were able to go to the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and, and poor Robin had to put up with me going through this, this Hall of Fame. It's, it's probably like walking with her through the Louvre. You know, it's very similar, and, and just, just loving it. And then when I learned as a Christian that, oh, oh, there's a Hall of Faith. That's cool. They should have one of those, because I knew nothing about Christianity. But, but uh, in realizing that that's just what this passage has been called, because they're just all of these people who are believers that are, that are laid out for these Christians as examples. And they're, they're shown these are individuals who have trusted God. Um, but the context of... Give it a minute. <laughs> of Hebrews uh, 11 is really Hebrews chapter 10, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. You know, as we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, we've looked at the idea that it's written to Jewish believers in the first century. These are individuals who grew up as Jews and were wrestling with this, this, this 
strange moment in covenantal change that they'd grown up into the old administration of the covenant of grace, and then Jesus came, he was died, he was buried, he was resurrected, he ascended into heaven, and issued in the new covenant, the, administ- the new administration of the covenant of grace, and they see this change. And everything's, everything's different. And they, they trust Jesus, and yet they've got the pull to remain in the old, and to remain Jews, not just in culture, but also in, in their uh, religion, and yet they knew they shouldn't do that. And so the author of Hebrews is writing to them about this transition and how they need to move forward in faith. And in chapter ten thirty nine, as we just read, he says, this is who you are. We are people of faith. We are going to move forward to pursue Jesus. And he begins to explain and and show examples. And he gives here the two examples in particular of Abraham and of of Sarah that are before us today that we're going to be considering. And these examples are listed there in particular in order to invite them and to invite us to exercise our faith. That faith isn't just something that just kind of, you know, you just have it, you got a, a can of faith, you know, that you kind of keep on your shelf somewhere. But it's, it's more like a muscle and it's something that you exercise and you, you put it into your life. And I want us to consider how we can exercise our faith this morning. I believe there are three ways that the passage shows us. And the first is we exercise our faith when we, when we choose to obey. Verse 8, by faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. need to choose to obey. In 1886, D.L. Moody was doing a a revival service up in the, the Boston area. And during the services, a young man gave a testimony. And the testimony that he gave, he said, I'm not sure, but I know that I will trust. I will obey. And that was the simple testimony. And while he's there, there was a musician who heard those words and wrote them down and realized there is a profound message in those words. I'm not sure. I will trust. I will obey. And he sent it to a friend who was a Presbyterian minister who upon reading them, proceeded to write a hymn. It's one of these weird things that that Presbyterian ministers, we think we're poets too. (laughs) Delusional. So so he he wrote wrote out this, this hymn that we know today as Trust and Obey. And I want to read just the, the fourth and fifth verses to remind us of what he wrote. But we never can prove the delights of his love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor he shows and the joy he bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by the side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. And we could all, and I thought about having us sing it, but I realized I'd have to lead it, so that was a horrible idea. We know the chorus, right? Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And we know in our hearts the truth of that message, do we not? It resonates with the Christian. The Christian says, yes, that 
is the Christian life. That I'm trusting in Jesus Christ and my trusting leads me to obedience. And I take that step of obeying what God has called me to do. It, in that little chorus, we have faith and obedience brought together and linked in an inseparable fashion, right? That they are brought together. They are not two different things, but they are two sides, if you will, of the same coin. That they are that interconnected. They, and in the Christian life, they are always joined together. For instance, can I obey without trusting? Why would I obey? Can I trust without obeying? Of course not. They have to be together. Abraham's first expression of faith was that he obeyed and went out to the land that he was commanded to go to. So if we're going to choose to obey, what does that mean? It means I need to identify God's call. For it says that Abraham, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, he was called. He was called. We have a lot of voices that are calling on us, right? A lot of people are telling us, this is what God wants you to do. How do we know what God is calling us to do? Where is his call? Well, for, for Abraham, we see it listed for us in Genesis chapter 12 in the first three verses. In Genesis chapter 12, we, we have this call listed to us. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This call that God placed upon him, that he said to him, go forth. Brendan Manning writes about that in the Signature of Jesus, actually the very first chapter. He begins to meditate on this idea and this call of what Abraham, Abram, experienced. He said, as Abram leaves Haran, your country, your people, and your father's house, he moves by a journey he never has made to a land he never has seen. He sets out not because he can predict the role he is to play in the history of salvation, but simply because of his personal experience, the spiritual experience of God speaking to him. There's no program he can detail, no insight into history with which he can support his decision, no model through which he can obtain a psychological identity. Spiritual experience has become a summons. It is God who directs, and the future is God's. He's acting upon this experience. Well, God calls us, also to obey. He calls us to obey, not to save us, right? We, we don't obey so we can get salvation. That could never work. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It's not our works that are saved us, but why does he call us to obey? He does that, that we might exercise our faith. That I begin to say, I believe that God is God, and he has called me and if I believe that God is God and he has called me, what will I do? I must follow that call. I must obey that call. It's truly as simple as that. Well, what is his call? I just want to think about that for a moment. The call that he's made to us. And there's a general call, right? The general call. And, and you know, I thought at first, I thought, well, we could, we could go through the Ten Commandments, right? That's, that's, that God's called all of us to the Ten Commandments, right? We, we understand that, um, but it's too long. 
So I thought, oh, wait a minute. God summarizes the Ten Commandments, doesn't he? In a single word. He calls us to love. Now, we have a tendency to believe that we love people, even maybe when we hate them, right? Right? I mean, we have that ability of self-deception. It's, and for some of us, it's really powerful. It's very effective. So how do I know if I'm loving someone? Well, I can tell if I'm loving someone in a very simple way. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If I begin to look at my actions, I begin to compare with that, and I say, so God has called me to love. We talked about this a number of years ago, right? Who's he called me to love? Well, as a husband, I'm to love my wife, right? To love my children, to love my parents, to love my family, got that. To love my neighbor, right? Got to do that. Got to love the stranger. Okay, good, good, good. I'd love to stop there. But then he says I have to love my enemy. And so I begin to look at myself, what is God's call that I'm going to follow? What is the God's call that I'm going to obey? First and foremost, love. I like uh, the idea that uh, Rich Mullins makes a comment. He says, well... We really need to master the simple knots before we move into the complex, right? And so the first place I've got to start is, am I loving? Let me just start there before I can begin to get into maybe the personal call upon my life. Because there's that as well. Abraham's call was a personal call to himself, right? We aren't called to the same place that Abraham was called to. We aren't called for the same purpose that he was called. That was a unique, special thing. But there's also special calls upon each of us and in our lives. God not only calls us to love, but he also calls you by name. As a matter of fact, he called Abram by name. He changed Abram's name. Abram, which meant uh, exalted father, was changed to Abraham, which meant father of a multitude. God changed his name because it matched what God had called him to do. And God has given you a name as well, a specific name that means something specifically to him and to you. And you know that name as you walk in obedience. It's who you are. It's not what you do. It's who you are in what you do. And that's God's call in your life. And it's so important for us to be still and to hear that name. To know what that name is. To persevere through the, the situations of life that we might be aware of who God has called us to be, the name that he has given us, and how we might indeed obey him specifically. To choose to obey, I have to begin by identifying God's call, but then I need to leave the results to God. I've told the story, and you probably heard the story of the man who was wrestling with God, and he wanted to do something for God, and God said, okay, I want you to go outside your house, and I want you to push that massive rock every day. And so the man goes out, and he pushes on that rock all day long, and he comes back in exhausted. You know, he sleeps it off, he goes out the next day, he's just still full of uh, excitement and, and, and uh, energy, and he goes out, he pushes on that rock again a second day. And the third day, he does that for about two weeks, and finally he's just tired, and he skips a day. And God meets with him. He says, why aren't you out pushing the rock? He says, Lord, that rock hasn't moved at all. He said, I never told you to move the rock. I called you to push against the rock. Which is kind of the way that we 
we, we go about our lives sometimes is we want God to do this great thing. He says, I didn't call you to do a great thing. I called you to be faithful. To be faithful to what I have called you to and leave the results to me. You see, Abraham had to do that. He didn't know what the future had in store for him as he followed. He had no idea. He was going someplace where he didn't even know where he was going. But he was going because God said to go, not knowing where he was going. Sometimes we get the idea that if I obey, everything will work out. I used to hear the the phrase, well, if you do this, everything else falls in place. And I've always said, anybody who says everything will fall in place has never cut down a tree. Right? Because the one thing the tree will not do is fall in the place I've planned it to fall. Right? It's just kind of a guarantee. That's not where it's going to fall. Things don't just fall into place. That's not the way that it works. Just because I obey doesn't mean it's going to work out. There was a uh, a popular Christian movie a, a while back that, that has some good messages, was encouraging people to really commit their life to Christ. Sadly, there was, there was kind of an underpinning of, of the movie that, that basically if you, if, as long as you commit your life to Christ, every problem in your life will get better and, and every success will be yours. And it, it was just kind of sad to see that. And having watched it uh, in a developing country where poverty was all around, I was really sad to see that message, that, that inaccurate, untrue message that was being spoken. But the fact is, we live it, right? We believe that. If I just obey, everything will be great. Everything will work out. But that's not up to me. That's up to God. There are different things that are promised me if I do obey. One of them is found in John chapter 15, verses 18 through 20. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. The world hated Jesus, and he obeyed perfectly all the time, right? If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. This reminder as I obey what's one of the things that may very well fall upon me. It's persecution. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5 gives us direction in dealing with that reality. In verses 7 through 9, For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body to be home with the Lord. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. So I'm going to obey because all I really care about isn't the result, but I want to be pleasing to my God. I want to do that which honors His name. I want to do that which brings glory to Him which involves my faith expressed in obedience. So the first exercise of faith is to choose to obey. The second is to raise your values. To raise your values just a little bit higher. Let's read verses 9 and 10. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. To raise your values. 
Ayn Rand defined values as she said that value is that which one acts to gain and keep, and virtue is the action by which one gains and keeps it. I just think it's such a helpful distinction and definition. Value is that which I'm going to work to gain and keep. That's what I value in my life. And virtue is how I'm going to go about doing it. I'm going to do it with that which I view as a virtue in my life. And so you can tell a lot about an individual by what they value. And by how they get what they value tells you what they view as virtuous. It's a helpful description. And it leads me to begin to think about what I value. The story is also told of a man who passed away and was, was getting ready to enter into heaven, and, and Peter is there, and, and he says to Peter, you know, can I bring in some of my stuff? And Peter says, no, you can't bring in any of your stuff. He says, he says, tell you what, just, it was very, very wealthy, very, very wealthy. How about if I just bring in one wheelbarrow? And Peter says, okay, a wheelbarrow. Okay, go get a wheelbarrow and come back. So he goes back and he liquidates all of his, all of his assets and he gets it all into gold. He says, Yes, I'm going to get the most bang for my buck. And so he heads up to heaven, and he's got this wheelbarrow full of gold, and he gets up there, and Peter says, oh, cool, pavement. It's not as valuable in heaven as it is here, right? What's truly of value? Jesus speaks about that in Matthew chapter 6. Verse 19, he says, Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, that is where your value is, there your heart will be also. It makes me really ask the question, what do I value? What do I work to gain and keep? What really excites my energies and drives me to put forth effort. What do I value? We see something of what Abraham valued as we look at this passage. And in it we see that it's good to to value the good that is on the earth. It's important that, that we receive that. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, God makes a promise to Abraham and... Uh, I usually paperclip my pages, and I did Genesis completely wrong this morning, so sorry about that. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. And then he describes it. The two things that he promises Abraham there that we see are descendants and land, right? These are the two things that Abraham has promised. God says that these are good things on the earth. These are things that are of value on the earth. This is good. This is what I promise to give to you. Does God promise to give us things that are not good? Of course not. He promises to give us that which is good, and that is, he promises to him land and children. These are good things. And Abraham valued them, and he experienced them, and he enjoyed those. For us, we think about the things that are good. We think about family, right? Family is a good on this earth, and we should value our family. We should work to gain and to keep our family and to hold that together. We should value kindness. I've discovered, particularly in the, in the last couple of years, 
just how much my heart is, is impacted when I see one individual showing kindness to another person that it just really stirs me inside. And it's just a, a beautiful thing because I think it's an expression of love which is a reflection of God in this world. And we should value kindness as we see it in this world. We should value love. Had uh, a wedding yesterday. Mary Beth and Stephen were married. And what is a, a wedding except a celebration of love? It's a good thing, right? We should value that. We should value things like rest. God has given to us the Lord's Day, a day in which we can, we can rest from, from our life. And a part of that, sometimes we can, we can have some levels of, of recreation or refreshment that we find in that resting from our labors. That it's not about what I do, it's about what God has done for me and I can rest in that. And to value that is a good thing which God has given to us here on this earth. But I can also value work. Because before he says to rest on the Sabbath day, he says what? Work six days. Work is a good thing for us to do, and we are, we are made to work, and we accomplish wonderful things when we work. It doesn't mean that I have to go to my, my nine-to-five, and that all, is all that my work is? Of course not. Our work is so much more beyond that. I, I, I know seeing some of you, and you've got gifts, and you do things at home. I love going to you all who have these gardens, flower gardens, and seeing what you do with, with, with flowers. And how you make this world so beautiful and you know how they interact with each other and you, you put them together and it's a beautiful thing and that's work and it's valuable, right? I know for you it's also recreation, but, but it is valuable, it's work. Then there are ideas like freedom, hope, and purpose. To see these things as good here on this earth and to value them here on this earth, working to gain them and to keep them in this world. I need to value good on earth, but I must pursue heaven. Look at verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Did you notice that God provided for Abraham, the children, and the land. By faith, he lived as an alien, where, as an alien where? In the land of promise. He received the land that God had promised him. Dwelling in tents with whom? Isaac, who's his son. And Jacob, his grandson. God gave him this good on the earth. God gave him the promise that he had made. And yet, Abraham was living for something more, was he not? He wasn't satisfied with that. He was living for heaven. And my apologies to the uh, team on the... PowerPoint, Matthew six thirty one through 33, gives us direction when it comes to this. Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's the example that we see from Abraham. 
So reorient your life toward heaven. To reorient your life toward heaven. You know, I believe that that's what the fourth commandment is mostly about. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I think it's just easy for us to get so oriented upon here and now. And there's good stuff here. And there's good stuff now. And we can become so focused on that that that's what we begin to live for and we forget that we're living for something higher. That's why I love that we we sing songs looking for heaven. We long for the glory which will be ours in that place so that we're constantly stirred to reorient our lives to live toward heaven, that we're pursuing that. One of the ways we do that, and and we, we do this, the team that's getting ready to go to Belize, you'll hear one of the things that we'll say over and over is it's people over projects. It's people over projects. We think we're going there to put a roof on a building. We're going there to build relationships because they last forever. In the process, we might put a roof on a building. We might not. God has a way of changing our plans from time to time. So we have to keep in in mind, it's people over projects. Why? Because we're oriented toward heaven. There'll be people in heaven. They won't necessarily be these roofs in heaven because they'll all burn up. So we live for heaven. We orient ourselves toward heaven. Look at yourself. Even today as this Lord's Day. Ask yourself, where do I need to change? Where do I need to reorient today? It isn't that that orientation will last for the rest of your life, but maybe we can get it to last till next week and you can reorient again next week, right? First off, choose to obey. That's how you exercise your faith. Secondly, you raise your values. And third, expect more. Look at verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, There was born even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of the heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Remember my senior year of high school, particularly my senior year of wrestling. I think in some ways the only reason I stayed in high school was to wrestle. That was, was, there's no question, it was my God at that time in my life. And uh, I had two goals. I wanted to make it to the state tournament, and I wanted to be elected by my team as the team captain. That would be an honor that would be disposed at the end of the year. And as we're getting ready toward the first week, the first uh, matches of the year, my coach came up to me and said, "Uh, Vince, I just got notice that you're ineligible for the first semester because I'd had two Fs in the semester before. And I can't tell you how devastated and he said, look, you've got two choices. You can quit and just go at home because it makes no sense, you know, uh, going on with these practices. is an awful lot of work, you know, if, if you're never going to wrestle. Or if you work hard, get your grades up, you can wrestle, and there are enough matches in the second semester that you can earn a spot to wrestle in our district tournament, and you might be able to go to state. And he left that choice with me. And he put him in that order. And I think he did it on purpose. Because he wanted to light inside me just a little bit of hope. You might still be able to achieve your goal. And that hope stirred in me the drive. I'm going to do this. 
and to put in that extra effort in order to accomplish something. Because that's what hope does. Hope is the certainty that there's something more, something better in the future. Right? There's something more. There's something better, and I know it. And that's my hope. And I'm going to live for that future. And hope leads to action. It's what strengthens me and empowers me to move forward. Look again at verses 11 and 12. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. You see, God exceeds your limitations. Verse 11, we get this picture of of Sarah, and we see her that by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life. Even beyond the proper time of life. Sarah. Sarah was 89 when she was told that she was going to conceive. 89 years old when she was told she was going to conceive. But not just was she 89, if you remember, she had lived her whole life barren. She was unable to have children. And she had known that. They had tried and they had tried and they had tried. And they found that she wasn't able to conceive a child. It wasn't something that was was there for her. So she was, if you will, almost doubly hopeless. With two ways in which she, she, she assumed that she couldn't. She had two limitations. And yet, what did God do? He went beyond her limitation. He exceeds your limitations. You see, friends, God dwells in you. Do you believe that? To know that the Holy Spirit is inside you? That He dwells there all the time. And the Holy Spirit is not the least of the Godhead, right? How much of God is the Holy Spirit? He's, he's all God, right? He's, he's, he's as God as the Father is. And He dwells inside you. With all of the power of God Almighty inside of you. And He's not passive. He's active inside of you. And so we have a tendency to forget that, and in forgetting that, we say sentences like, I can't, right? I can't. We may say things like, I can't resist the temptation that I'm facing. Have you ever said that? Because it's so hard. And we focus on the hard instead of focusing on, but wait, the Holy Spirit is inside me. We say sentences like, I can't take any more. I'm sure no one here has ever said that, right? Not this morning. But this sermon's going on, you're starting to push it. (laughs) I can't take any more, but the Holy Spirit is in me. And He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. 
We say things like, I can't do anything to help. We see someone else going through difficult times and we don't think we're of any use. We look then at Genesis 18, verses 9 through 14. Because there's one more can't that we need to say, and that is, I can't doubt God. Genesis 18, verse 9. Then they, that is the three visitors who were visiting Abram, said to him, Where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, There in the tent. And he said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a son when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. At this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. I can't doubt God, because he can do anything. And therefore, I need to repent of my unbelief. Sarah doubted at first, didn't she? God said, you're going to have a child, and what'd she do? She laughed at God. I mean, that's, that's quite a bit, isn't it? But that shows you the level of her doubt. That she laughed at God. But is that the end of the story? What does Hebrews tell us? Hebrews tells us that by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive. She believed. Friends, I think this tells us, and the message of the Bible is very clear, no matter how you fall, you can return. No matter how you fall. Sarah fell, right? She doubted, but she came back and believed, and God was there to receive her. David had doubts when Absalom turned against him. And remember, they, they said, shall we, one of the prophets said, shall we curse Absalom? He says, no, maybe, or one of these guys who cursed David, shall we curse him? No, maybe he's right. Maybe this is falling upon me. Maybe God is cursing me. Maybe God's taking me out of this. He'd forgotten the promise that God had made to him. He doubted. He had fallen. And yet God was able to bring him back and to restore him. The disciples, after the crucifixion, being such stalwarts of the faith, what did they do? They ran away. Right? What about you? Have you turned aside for a time? You know, I probably still come to church, and that's all fine, but, but I haven't really been seeking God of late. Have you found yourself falling to the familiar temptation? You know, that temptation that you've told God time and time again, I'm tired of it in my life, and I'm going to stop, and yet you keep finding yourself falling in that same place? Maybe, maybe you've just kind of quit seeking. You just kind of gave up. Maybe you would even say that you quit believing. Friend, come home. 
God waits and He will restore you. Come home to Him now. Maybe you've never actually put your faith in Jesus, but you know you ought to and you've heard the message. He says to you, come home now and He will restore you. Repent of your unbelief and return to Jesus Christ. I wonder how many people are aware uh, that last weekend Ben ran his second half marathon. Did you all know that? Isn't that awesome? I am always uh, uh, just in awe of people who can do something like that. And a part of it, I saw a video as he finished it. And that's one of the reasons why I'm in awe, because walking was hard at that moment. And just thinking of, of running for over 13 miles. And just the, the, the wear and tear and the, the amount of training and strength that it takes and the mental energy to be able to keep going for 13.1 miles isn't something that we can just turn around and say, oh, I'll just go do that, right? Um, how long was your, your training regiment for it? About six weeks? I'm sorry? 16 weeks. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> Even more so. <laughs> But through all of that exercise, you were able to accomplish something that's significant. It, and in so doing, he also took 15 minutes off of his earlier time because he trained hard and he exercised hard. Tomorrow is uncertain for all of us, right? How many of us expected that in last week we would lose both uh, Harry Reader and Tim Keller in the same week in two entirely different ways? Such a, such a shocking thing for us in the PCA and, and for these individuals who we've, we've read their books, we've heard them preach, and, and we've been impacted by them, and like that. Um, a friend recently shared with me that he was meeting with his doctor and he was diagnosed with uh, dementia. And he's, he's having to sort through that. And, and he knows that the average life expectancy after diagnosis is about six years. And we're having this discussion over breakfast and he's, he's sharing this with me and he's just trying to sort through what does this mean? How does this affect me? And, I, I, and it's not my first friend who's wrestled with that. How can you face that? You don't know what faith you need tomorrow, right? You don't know if tomorrow you have to run a double marathon, Right? And so we start exercising now. We exercise our faith now, knowing that in the future we may face some need. Exercise your faith by choosing to obey, by raising your values, and expect more, knowing that God is faithful. Let's pray. Father, I pray for this congregation. I pray for us as your people that you will make us individuals of faith. Help us today to exercise our faith that when we face the trial tomorrow, we won't lose sight of you, but that we'll continue walking the path. And Father, as we exercise our faith,
Would you be so kind as to allow us to speak of that faith to our neighbors? And would you bring them to a saving faith in Jesus? We ask in his name. Amen.